And welcome to the Two Medics podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors, mah.uk.com for medical accountancy needs and also to lifelinehealthcaregroup.co.uk for the best locum rates. Welcome to another episode of the Two Medics podcast. My name's Beth and John. I'm a current GP trainee, ex neurosurgery trainee working in Liverpool. And with me today is. Hello, everyone. I am Nina Jar. I am a GP with a special interest in urgent care. God, that sounded really like a radio host for Sana. <laughs> We've been, well, you've been practicing your introduction. Oh, obviously I have, can you tell? But yeah, another takeover episode from ourselves, so I hope that's okay. (laughs) I never quite know how they go down. No, yeah. (laughs) This is it, this is it. So how have you been, man? How are things going? Yeah, good. I rotated that first week of August, like most other trainees. What are you doing now? What specialty? I'm doing Jerry's. That feels like a swear word. Isn't it after all those uh, <laughs> you like, can't previous say that. care of the advice. mature person where I'm working at the moment is actually called DMOPS Department of Medicine for the older person which I quite like but uh, Jerry's is Jerry's isn't it but no it's honestly the, I am loving it I am absolutely loving it yeah you've got a brilliant supervisor haven't you yeah no I have I've got an amazing supervisor really good support if I feel like part of a team and it's just so refreshing. And I think I said to my supervisor the other day, like in the 10 years that I've been qualified as a doctor, it's the first time that I've come to work and like not been scared or anxious to come to work. And she said that was oh really god. sad. And I thought, oh my God, it is. Honestly, I can't, I can't like that. That's just the truth. So yeah, I'm very lucky. I feel like I'm very lucky where I'm working at the moment. And it's the hospital where I actually did my F1, F2 all those years ago. So it's, so it's been quite nice going back. And a lot Mm -hmm. of things have changed, but I've seen quite a lot of familiar faces and things, which is nice. This should be the norm. You shouldn't have to. No one should have to go into work. Like, I'm so lucky. I didn't go to. I don't go to work and feel scared. Like I'm so lucky. Like that's not lucky. I'm shitting myself this morning. It's amazing. (laughs) I know. I just that feels. It feels quite pathetic. But I don't know. I'm just having. It's. I don't know. It. I don't know what it is. Well, there's certain things. I feel like part of a team, which I haven't for a long time, and in GP, I felt quite isolated. Yeah. And it's kind of what I envisioned medicine to be. So I thought I would get that from GP, you know, this whole holistic kind of care of the whole person. But I didn't. Obviously, we all know how it is. You know how it is. It's just very much like quick fire, feeling like you're a community SHO sometimes, just doing jobs for other people. Whereas when I'm working in Jerry's, it's like an acute frailty unit. And it just, I know it's early days, but I feel like I'm finally getting that holistic experience and you're looking at the whole person and there are medical decisions to be made but it's also the social stuff you know you're chatting and I don't know it's just it's what I envision the kind of doctor that I would want to be so I'm happy you're not changing specialties again (laughs) we need you in general practice I'm actually thinking about it (laughs) are you oh Oh, that's that yeah you should hear first no I'm only joking no but I am I am seriously (laughs) what's your next intro gonna be oh god I am not gonna do another training program there is no way on this earth that I could do IMT like I don't know I just can't be a trainee forever but the one thing about GP is you can specialize in lots of different things so you can yeah go into elderly and frailty if that's one of your interests yeah 
So whether I see whether I make it to CCT, we'll see. But that's yeah. I'm just I don't know. My eyes have been opened to something that I never considered before, and it's hard, isn't it? Because you never know what you want to do, I guess, until you experience these things. Yeah. And, uh, but how much of yeah. it is because you've actually you're supported and have oh, good supervisors as well? So massively. I think your environment with your team makes a massive yeah. difference. Into but it. I think that's how a lot of people end up in specialties, though, isn't yeah, it? Like I agree. you guess you're supported by some people. It's how I bloody fell into neurosurgery. I was captured yeah. by yeah. some registrars who just kind of took me under their wing and took me to theatre. And it's it does sometimes work like that, doesn't it? But yeah, yeah, lots to think about, I think. But yeah, how are you anyway? How have you been? Yeah, good. I've just had my sister's wedding. Oh, Ooh. yeah. Oh, it was amazing. No, it was really nice because I think it's our first like proper big family like meetup and celebration since the pandemic. And I mean, you know how hard the pandemic's been mm. for us as a family. We've had some really sad losses in our family the last couple of years. Yeah. So being able to meet up for something so happy we were just so grateful to be together oh. and not just the wedding day like a couple of days before we had loads of family that came down my you know I had family fly from Kenya who I hadn't seen in 12 years wow. and it was just fun that we had water gun fights beforehand oh. musical chairs pizza parties so we had like two days beforehand of just bonding and fun Oh, that sounds amazing. Have you seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Oh, I love that. I think we've spoken about this movie that's, before, haven't we? I, I that's my that family, film. My Big Fat Punjabi <laughs> Wedding. Honestly, like if amazing. you just times the number of people by five, you get yeah. my family. So yeah, that's Oh, oh that sounds like. so good. I'm glad you had such a good time because weddings can be somewhat stressful, can't they? In the It was still stressful. In the leader. I'm yeah. still knackered. I feel like I need a holiday. Oh I should have gone on the you honeymoon with do my sister to recover. To recover. <laughs> Can you imagine? Hello. Oh, we're all here. Come on, family. Oh, my God. Your poor sister. She would have had a choice. Bless her. But, yeah, we're a couple of weeks into August now. So, I guess, yeah, those trainees have changed over. And I guess the new FY ones have started. And they're a couple of weeks into their first post, which we know is obviously incredibly difficult. But I hope that people are coping and that it's going okay on the whole. And people feel like that they have support and people to turn to and I know Imran and Tharusha always kind of mention don't they that if you're not okay then please ask for help and I think we always just want to reiterate that message and you know there's amazing kind of services out there like practitioner health and the BMA counselling and things so it's always worth kind of thinking about and mentioning but did you feel prepared after med school for working as a doctor, Nina? Ah, uh, so this is a tweet by Nimra, and their Twitter handle is at Nimspov. And she asked, "Med," she stated, "Med school does not prepare you for the NHS at all. Like, what was I even doing for the last six years? <laughs> no, I didn't think med school prepared me for NHS whatsoever. See, so I no. felt like we learned about, you know." anatomy physiology conditions you know different specialties but actually when I started my job I kind of turned up on the ward and completely clueless like I didn't really know what was expected of me what my role Mm. was gonna be and even I think beyond that as you know I feel like medical school is almost like an extension of school you're like mollycoddled you know quite to some extent yeah definitely to some extent and then you start as an employee and then you have all these issues with you know pay and contracts and that was the biggest minefield for me I didn't have a clue what what were my rights or not but maybe Mm. that was just me being quite 
naive and clueless no, myself. I think it's fair. I think because like, I think it's one, there's one aspect of kind of being a doctor and, and personally, I didn't even feel prepared for that because I do think that you are just taught kind of pathology and I never felt like when I started work as a doctor, I feel like I never actually put that into real life and how it actually presents. Like I knew facts, but well, not that many facts, but I knew some facts. <laughs> and, then, and then it was very different to actually doing it in a ward environment. And I don't think I'd ever, you know, I didn't know to do a ward round every day. And that sometimes I'd had to do that by myself. And yeah. like you say, the whole kind of things with payroll, GMC registration. I didn't know I'd be paying for GMC registration and indemnity insurance every year, all yeah. those things. And I think if we found it hard and we trained in the UK, imagine how much more oh difficult it would be for yeah. IMG doctors. Like, it's just insane. But I don't really know what the answer is because people, I think this kind of stuff crops up and people say, oh, well, if you'd made the most out of your placements and turned up and stuff, then you'd be prepared. And I think, you know, there is an element of that. And sometimes I think, oh, I could have been more involved in placements. I but it's not that could simple. have been more involved. No, I <laughs> think, I, think simple, a sh- I mean, were you offered a shadowing week? We didn't, I don't no, think we had nothing, one. I think that would have like been that. really helpful. Like instead of ha- like one of the months of, in a medical school when you start having like a paid, like mm. month of shadowing just from the team before just so you know what yeah. the hell you're doing yeah and I think some medical schools do it differently so when I trained in Cardiff our finals were at that time I don't know what it is now but they were at the end of the whole thing so all the placements were like in specific like blocks of specialties but where I'm working now so obviously Liverpool Medical School is the local one I think their finals like kind of come at the end of fourth year and then they have fifth year which is more it feels like a bit, a bit more of like an apprenticeship. I think that's quite a good way of doing things. So it's like learning how to be a doctor rather than just, ca- you know, learning how to pass exams still. So I think it totally depends where you go. And yes, yeah. it is an element of engagement and stuff. But also, I mean, so- I was like you, I had my finals at the very end. And at that point, you're just focusing on passing your exams. Mm. You know, you need that time to just work and you know mm. like I said like focus on passing and I quite yeah. like actually having your finals end of fourth year and then having a year of like an yeah. apprenticeship definitely see the yeah like how that would work but do you remember like your first couple of on calls as an FY1 and stuff I remember my first flipping day so my first I won't say where I worked because it was obviously this is appalling but my <laughs> first 10 days as an FY1 so my first day it was just me and an F2, the reg and the consultant, one was on annual leave, one was on study leave. So we turned up on the ward, not even knowing who, we only found out like a few days before which team we were going to be under and which consultant we were going to be under. Turned out like, oh, they're not here. Like we found out that morning. And then luckily the F2 kind of knew how to do a ward round because I didn't have a clue. And then that I turned up the next day, second day and found out he'd quit. And he oh, just wow. left. So yeah. then I was... Good for, him. <laughs> good for him. I was alone. I'm like, what do I do? So I'm going around and doing this ward round completely by myself for that first week, not knowing if I'm doing the right thing or not. And then I remember about five days into it, I had a patient who suddenly deteriorated, like completely deteriorated. I didn't know. I didn't know who to call. I didn't have any like senior person on my team that I could escalate to. So I just pulled this random doctor on my ward he was like a senior SHO I said can you help me my patient's really unwell and then he goes oh but that's not that patient's not on my team Mm. 
I'm like, there is no one on my team. I am the only person. I've been a doctor for three days. And then I just pulled out the drama card. I just went, if you don't help me right now, this patient will die. (laughs) I am that bad a doctor. I am that bad. (laughs) Like if this patient is left with me by myself. So then he goes, okay, fine. Drama card. And so then he came and helped me. And then, yeah. Yeah, the peri-arrest yeah. team came and it was really... Bloody hell, yeah. Right. I think my experience wasn't that dissimilar. So I started on respiratory and again, it wasn't really allocated a team. And I remember I was turning up and not finding where I needed to be. And I just like, I just cried and cried for days because yeah, like you, I think we turned, it was, I turned up and eventually found out I was on this like 40 bedded acute God. ward and it was just me and another F1 and there was no SHOs, no registrars. I think there was just rotor gaps everywhere. And we were coming in at like eight o'clock in the morning and leaving at nine o'clock at night because we just didn't have a clue what we were doing. There were some consultant ward rounds, but they were not every day. We didn't know who to escalate to. I remember like the two of us going to try and get a coffee on one of our first few days. And as soon as we left the ward, put a, a medical emergency team call out. Oh, and we just, and I just remember crying oh. and crying and wanting to quit. And like, look, looking back now, like, like I had serious, I have serious concerns about like my well-being at that time. And I'm, I kind of hold a lot of resentment that like none of that was picked up. And I remember trying to complain to people. And I think I ended up speaking to the foundation program director at the time and, and he wasn't really helpful. And he was, oh, are you threatening to whistleblow? And I didn't know what that meant. And I just was like, no, I just need help. <laughs> like, it was just, I don't know. And it's, I just hold a lot of resentment for that time. Yeah, but, I, I do too. I echo yeah, that Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't pleasant. But Erin, I think it was Erin tweeted about saying that she was had her first weekend working as a doctor in this past week. And she wanted to know if there was any kind of tips for a successful weekend of work. And I distinctly remember being on call for that first weekend as well. And again, being made to cry by numerous people. But I don't know, I quite like it sometimes because Twitter is full, well, med Twitter is full of bin fires. But sometimes when someone asks for like genuine advice like this, people pull together and give really sincere like responses, which I like. Do you know what? If I needed help, I would just, you know, you feel like you could just go to med Twitter and just tweet, I need help. I know, and that didn't exist for us. No, it didn't exist. So you actually didn't know where to turn to exactly yeah I was so shy as well which I know is hard to believe now but like I wouldn't have thought to go to like the mess or whatever and be able to go to these senior doctors and ask for you know it yeah it's I think things are different maybe for the better but do you know what really helped me actually after the first few weeks we had all the f1s all lived on site in like this Mm. block of flats and we were all together and we kind of knew who the consultants were who were really difficult to work with and I remember when we had this particular surgical consultant who was an absolute cow I'm sorry she really was and she would make her f1s cry they'd be there to like nine ten at night on just a normal working day whenever we would see he was rated to work with her and some of us if that person wasn't back by eight o'clock we'd all like pile down there on the ward at like eight nine o'clock and just like help them finish their jobs and I think that camaraderie got Mm. us through that first year because it was really hard I remember that first week or first month I kept having dreams that I had killed patients it was really yeah I kept having those dreams it was yeah and I don't, I don't know if the camaraderie is there as much anymore because I know when I started, there was about 40-odd of us that were F1s in this hospital. I lived in the accommodation because I'm not a Liverpool trainee. Yet. I'd never been to Liverpool before. Yes, I did apply to work there. That was my choice. But it, there was only like, I think, three of us in the hospital accommodation. So it was, it was really difficult to get that sense of camaraderie. And a lot of mm. 
the people there were local graduates from Liverpool Uni and obviously knew each other and it's really hard then sometimes coming in as an outsider from a different yes. university yeah so that not much of that camaraderie was there but I did move in with a nurse who I was working with in my first rotation she had bought a house and wanted someone to kind of split the mortgage with her so I felt that I had some camaraderie from being like living with someone who was in healthcare and kind of understood. So I think it's just so important to have those peers, isn't it? That you can kind of share stories with and debrief and reflect with. But uh, yeah, there was lots of nice kind of tips on that thread about kind of remembering to eat and drink and pee. That was a really important one. Like I think people take that for granted sometimes. What tips do you have? What has helped you, do you think, for your on calls or long shifts or long days? Anything that kind of gets you through? God, like hindsight's wonderful now, isn't it? But I think... Or even now, like for, what yeah, do you do now? For me, I Because I felt think, all those tips felt kind of relevant to yeah, kind of yeah. working even Oh, ab- absolutely. But I think for me, I have this thing where if I have a day off or any downtime, I get re- feel really guilty if I'm not doing anything or if I'm just kind of like resting. I feel like I need to have plans all the time. I am someone who enjoys doing stuff. And I think sometimes you get caught up. So you might do all these like long days or nights and then you get maybe like the weekend or rest days afterwards. And I used to just push myself to keep doing things more and more because I just felt like I had to. But I think one of my main tips is actually like you can use your days off to do nothing. Like yeah. that is allowed and that is incredibly restorative sometimes. <laughs> like sometimes you need to just zone out, not speak, not, you know, do anything. I think that is as important as, you know, keeping busy and making plans and seeing friends. So I guess it's just embracing your downtime how you want to do it and how it's absolutely okay if you don't want to do anything it's not being lazy it's literally just resting that's important what about yourself I'd probably echo what other people had said on the thread comfy shoes (laughs) you know I go my scrubs every time (laughs) um yeah I never skip a meal no matter how busy I am I'll always eat and the other thing I always do this is going to sound really weird and I think I can only do it as a GP it's harder in hospital but I'll always leave the building for five minutes no that's don't laugh that's really good I can't eat lunch at my desk whilst I'm doing letters and path results I have Mm. to physically get myself out the room get outside of the building even if I'm in my car I don't care but I will be outside and I will have my lunch away from Nina that's really healthy that's really good if I'm in my room I'll get constant knocks on the door you know yeah exactly I just Yeah. yeah I need to not be found for five minutes I tell no, them I say I'm going out there I'm MIA is yeah. my mobile number but that's another thing I like about this current rotation is that like we tend to go to lunch together and we either sit in the staff room or sit in the canteen and it is nice to be separate because when I was just working in my GP rotation no one had lunch together like for me I was elated if I would get to go to the supermarket across the road for a walk like oh. it's exactly what you're saying yeah. it's that separation isn't it so no I think that's I think that's incredibly a healthy stance to take but I don't know, I'm always quite like bemused still, I guess, sorry, when senior doctors kind of suddenly gain this insight that things are still very difficult for FY1 or foundation or junior doctors or whatever. And I'm talking about a tweet, no, and I know disrespect or no shade whatsoever. So this was a tweet from Dr. Geraint Priest. And he said, talking to new F1, F2 doctors this week, can't book leave or arrange future events, can't park at the hospital and parking tickets are common when on long shifts, messed up salary payments. Whatever the reasons, it's no way to treat employees. No wonder people are leaving. And I don't know, I just think sometimes like people act surprised that this is still the case. And that just amuses me. I think they probably assume that things have improved since they were juniors. Has there mm. been a cohort that's come through that hasn't 
been affected by every single one of those issues. How on earth have we not changed? How on earth has this not improved year on year? I mean, I could have written that tweet myself like 30, 40 years ago. When you were a fetus. (laughs) I was like, hang on a second. You look really good for 60. (laughs) But no, in all seriousness, you're right. Like these things just keep perpetuating. And somehow, because we accept them, they just keep happening, don't they? That's really embarrassing. it has such a massive impact on your well-being. It causes so much, these issues cause so much stress. Like, I still remember my husband not being given annual leave for our wedding. Oh, my gosh. And we were we gave one year's notice at a new hospital, found out what the rotation would be, emailed the consultant a year in advance. and said, could we just have this one week off? And he was he was told, you know the rotor will be done at that time and if you happen to be on call then it will you'll have it'll be your responsibility to swap it or oh get low God. or pay for locum cover yourself oh gosh like, what? and then he got the rotor and then he was on call of course he was right I sometimes think about whether there's like a Christmas BMJ article in this you know like looking at people who request leave for significant life events and the probability that you'll be placed on call <laughs> yeah. and there's definitely an, a Christmas BMJ article in this so watch this wasn't space. there a tweet like ages ago that was really funny they didn't someone say all rotor coordinators should work the rotor that they put down for like a oh, month God, before, yeah. before yeah. they actually design it that would yeah, be interesting but yeah, again, more issues with pay this month. There was a, a tweet from Nicole Greenshields and she posted a screenshot of an email that was sent to the doctors in whatever trust from the HR. And essentially it was kind of saying that, you know, as you're aware, August is the biggest, is August rotation is kind of the biggest rotation of the year, you know, as if that doesn't happen every year. And that they found it really challenging and there's been a number of late changes from HEE. And because of that, they didn't get their paperwork processed in time for August payday. And so sorry, but you're not going to get paid on time. Like, what the heck? This happens to every seniority level, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> these oh, no, issues I don't doubt it. with yeah. pay. Yeah. Yeah. Same old. I think we've spoken about this before as well, haven't yeah. we? About not being paid. Yeah, but- I'm, yeah, my pay's wrong this month because I had an email. So yeah, again, rotated, even though I'm with like a lead employer, I rotated and I got, I think I got sent a work schedule about 12 hours before I actually started this job. And on the 2016 contract, obviously that's meant to be sent ahead of time. And they sent it to me and it was wrong. It didn't have kind of like my weekend allowances and stuff. So then I got an email from HR at lead employer to say, oh, have you got your work schedule? Because the deadline for payroll is in less than 24 hours and we haven't got one. Your hospital's not responding to us. So do you have one? And I said, well, I do, but it's wrong. So I'm trying to get it sorted. And they're like, oh, okay then. And obviously missed the deadline. So that's just, that's, oh, there's nothing we can do. Or it's in hand and it's like, well, it's my mortgage. (laughs) It's crazy, man. But imagine where you're not just being paid on time and a fair amount, but you're also given a 1,200 well-being budget. It could only imagine be the private that. sector, couldn't it? It could only <laughs> be the private sector. That, is, that was the tweet by Milky Tea, at Milky Tea. Yeah, and they wrote, chatting to my bestie flatmate who works as an analyst, and she casually tells me how the company she w- works for 
bought her a 200 pound plus desk chair so she can work comfortably from home and gave her a 1200 pound well-being budget remind me why I'm in the NHS yeah because I when I worked for the Department of Work and Pensions I worked in the private sector oh, briefly yes, before yeah. switching I, my I felt like all my Christmases had come at once when I got a proper office chair that I got measured for to work. You got measured for it, yeah. Did you? A proper office chair. Had my GMC registration paid for that year. Had money put towards my expenses for glasses because of screen use. No. And and we went. A, a few of us, kind of the admin staff and the nurses, doctors, and physios, went out for like a brunch one afternoon, like on the weekend. And then a couple of weeks later, my boss texted me and said, "Oh, uh, what's your bank details?" Because we owe you so so much money and the company had put like this money towards our social budget so we got we obviously we just got reimbursed for this brunch and I was just like my jaw was on the floor yeah I was like what's the catch like (laughs) what is this a joke or yeah it's just insane it's insane so if you were given a 1200 pound well-being budget for yourself what would you spend it on Oh my god! I don't even know. Like, not sketches. I wouldn't spend on sketches. They're so comfortable. They're so comfortable. What was that episode we did? And you said that you'd buy a hamster. Do you remember that? <laughs> a well-being hamster. Can I just say? I didn't say I'd buy a hamster. I said I'd have a little cuddle room, like a well-being room where there's hamsters, where you just when you're stressed, you just go and hold one. But do you know what? <laughs> Shout out to Sarge. Easily please. As well. He actually sent me after that podcast, well, sent us two little hamsters, toy hamsters, keeping hamsters, as a little gift. And you kindly let me keep yours. Oh yeah. And so my kids, yeah. my two little boys, they put it on their school bag and they still have it now. They love them. Oh, that's really so cute. see it's working for them. But that's well twelve hundred pounds worth. That's a bargain for the NHS <laughs> if they were giving you your well being budget. It's just another world though, isn't it? It's a complete other world. world. Do you know, one, where I did my GP, my reg year as a GP in Hampshire, the surgery that I worked in was brilliant. And do you know what they did? Every five years, the GPs had a three-month paid sabbatical. And that was for the partners and the salary GPs. Wow. So they were all given, every five years, they were all given a three-month sabbatical. My That's trainer incredible. took his kids out of school for three months and got a caravan in Australia and just drove around Australia for three months. One of the other GPs, her husband was a gynae consultant at the local hospital. And the two of them like got a little team together and worked in Africa for three months. And it was just, oh, like people just came back, just like Refreshed. completely rejuvenated. Yeah. yeah. And you just don't feel like oh. you're just on this like, constant treadmill of like wasting life and you're actually living yeah. your life it was yeah so actually that's what I would yeah. want I would want time that's amazing I'd want yeah time. time and Imran says time is money man he's got a point <laughs> he's got a point Imran's time is worth a lot of money clearly I don't know how far 1200 quid will get you probably about 45 minutes but yeah time is money but do you know who doesn't have time GPs but also staff in A&E they don't have oh. time no one has time, man. They haven't got time. They're under huge amounts of pressures. And the head of NHS England has instructed hospitals to prepare a public awareness campaign calling for people to minimise pressures on urgent and emergency services. So we're noticed, so I read this tweet and then I noticed this week that when I drive into work, 
there's this massive billboard on the grass outside our hospital now <clears> that says in huge letters, help us to help our sickest patients. Then something about only attending A&E if you need to. And then there's all these like colored boxes underneath, which has got other like 111 pharmacies, whatever. And I just thought, oh my God, like you can't, I don't know. I just, we can't expect people to make that decision, surely. No, no you can't at all. So there's a, a tweet by Dr. Matthew Knight. And he wrote, he kind of echoed what we were all feeling, really. I am deeply uncomfortable about patients being encouraged to not attend A&E. I do not believe anyone goes to A&E unless they feel they need to. And the absence of need is often not identified until some tests and the input of the medical profession professional has occurred. I mean, it's downright dangerous telling patients yeah. not to go to A&E because it's not always... It's not always clear cut when something yeah. needs A&E or when something needs a GP or when, you know, a, an issue needs pharmacy but hasn't input. There, hasn't there been research? It's, I don't know who has done this, but hasn't there been research that has showed that the increase in A&E attendances is not because of people not getting GP appointments yes. or inappropriate attendances? So it's still annoying that this rhetoric is just getting fed through all the time from know, it's government constant. level, isn't it? Go on. No, I was just going to say, I like I liked Parody. Parody RCGP made a comment to that and said, many health professionals struggle to know when to visit ED or go to the GP. It's not binary. There's a lot of nuance. GPs have plenty of examples of patients who should have, but didn't, and are now living with enduring illness as a result. I don't even know when I need to go to the doctor either. I just, like, no, it, I don't know these things. <laughs> no, it can be really hard. And there was a tweet by Ayabala Adebawale, and she put, I called a new mum to congratulate her on the arrival of her baby. I asked how the baby was. She said the baby is so quiet and has been sleeping. He slept for eight hours and they were glad he was such a gentle child. I screamed. That child was obviously hypoglycemic. And I actually had a very similar situation. So I had seen that this was a few years ago, about four years ago, I had the mother had booked in to see me for a really significant issue. So we'd taken quite a long time in that consultation. And then she was about to leave. And literally, this is one of those hand at the door turning around whilst I'm here. And she goes, whilst I'm here, can you just prescribe some saline nasal drops for my baby? Because my baby's been a little bit snuffly. I'm like, okay, her baby was literally just about three to four weeks old. And I said, okay, let me just see the little baby. So it was winter time. The baby was in the push chair, had a snowsuit on, completely covered just under the nose. But I could see the child had nasal flaring. So I'm like, okay, let's get the baby on the bed straight away. And mum said, oh, no, baby's fine. Like the last few days, baby's been a little bit unsettled, hasn't been feeding as much. But today has been a lot calmer, has been improved and just kind of sleeping it off. And I'm like, right, okay, your baby's not, you know, mm. sleeping it off. The child was drowsy, floppy, wow. had a respiratory rate of over 80 and a heart rate of over 200. So oh, that baby better. was septic, called a blue light ambulance and yeah, you know, we sent the baby straight in. But this is what I mean, like things aren't clear no, cut. and at all. You can't put that expectation on patients to to decide whether or not a medical problem yeah, some things, you know, earwax, for example, you know, you can't go to A&E for that. Yeah, there are some things, obvious yeah. things, but people have got, you know, arm pain or chest pain, and they don't know what the underlying cause is in their head, that arm, that left arm pain that might be a heart attack, because that's what they, yeah. they have, that's what their understanding yeah. is. And it's just as valid, yeah. But tell me though, does Lyme disease go oh, to A&E? <laughs> 
why we brought well yeah why we brought this up i take full responsibility do you know what i was so tempted to delete this tweet i think we have to mention it no matter how much it cooks our swede we've got to mention this let's do it get me some alcohol yeah this was a thread by graham no last name. Cheers, Graham. Um, that our, one of our colleagues, Jimmy Lam, a GP, highlighted this week. And it was a th- it was a picture of a child's arm and a leg with what looked like a number of erythematous target lesions, pretty much looking like erythema multiforme. And the original post said, another GP disgrace. Refusal to see my little boy after strange rashes appear. Diagnose over the phone as hives from insect bites. To me, look like Lyme disease. Okay. Take him to A&E, seen by a doctor, diagnosed with Lyme disease. GP can't keep getting away with that. And then for some reason, they bloody tagged the disgrace that is Alison Pearson into the end of that tweet. It had all the components of a Daily Mail headline. That that is what I'd spend my well-being budget on, getting rid of... If we all collectively put our well-being budgets together, can we just get rid of the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and all their journalists... That would actually do wonders for my well-being because this really pissed me off, this tweet, like in all the responses to it. I didn't even read all the responses. But no, I think it was along the lines of all these armchair doctors and do not get me wrong, I would never downplay anyone's concerns and someone had a little go at me and said, you know, this parent was worried and I'm like, yes, I completely take that on board. But what is not appropriate is this vile, completely offensive and insulting GP bashing. And it's just, and it's just half the story and this person's like I've got no medical qualifications but that looked like Lyme disease to me and it's like you can't say that and also if a doctor diagnosed those target lesions as Lyme disease then I'm not sure that's the best diagnosis or the most appropriate diagnosis anyway yeah it was just a whole pile of steaming dog turd the entire thread it's just a lot of firstly GP bashing is a feels like a national sport right now it's just open open game on GPs but I also think that it's just based on a huge a huge degree of ignorance as to what mm. the GPs actually do and there's a tweet by Ian Penja I mean this is from 25th of July so it's a while ago but it was just encapsulates what we do so he just put team GP typical day is 100 names on a screen right and then he's just given some examples of what he's had so a 13 year old boy locked himself in a bathroom self-harming 89 year old had a fall paramedics asking GP to review 50-year-old lady can't move her right arm. Nine-year-old lost vision in right eye. Lab rings with a potassium of 2.8. So, you know, these are the sorts of things that we're dealing with. So if you've got if you've got that huge volume of patients, then you have to see some... You, got, you can't see 100 patients face-to-face. You're going to be there for, that, you know... Use that clinical judgment, yeah. Exactly. And Shivani made a good point. So Shivani Misra tweeted, I've just seen the Lyme disease GP bashing tweet. How do we educate the public on how the practice of medicine is undertaken? It's an art, not a science. It's not a game show where you have to get the diagnosis in one shot or you're a shitty doctor. But I'm not even sure that it's possible to do this now because something just appears to have shifted completely. Yeah. And I don't know if it's more since COVID or whether it was kind of starting to happen before COVID, but now it's like... GP's a public enemy, number one. And I'm just not hopeful, I guess, that that public perceive public perception can be changed with regards to all well, this. We've been completely vilified in like so many media outlets and it's oh like it's happening over and over again. So, you know, mm. the public are gonna you know, you tell a lie enough times, it becomes the truth. Yeah. 
and people yeah. are angry they want someone to blame and you know their stories are valid that they can't get GP appointments or yeah. you know but absolutely and the media have given them some media outlets have given them yeah. a cause for it you can't get an appointment because your GP's closed your GP's lazy so obviously that just fires up their anger but there's no engagement of brain actually no that's mm. not true it's pure yeah. ignorance but it's and having these, yeah, massive they have consequences, impact. doesn't it? Yeah, it has consequences. So another tweet by at Milky Tea, and she put, as a response to Graham's tweet, as a quote to tweet to Graham's tweet, this is why I changed my mind about training as a GP in F2. Nothing but constant abuse from the public who don't understand the pressure GPs are under and will constantly try to hold them rather than the government responsible for the current state of primary care. It's certainly given me, like, it's making me have second thoughts about kind of like, why on earth am I entering into GP when it's currently like this? Like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, if people why? ask me what yeah. I do for a living, I, I don't actually say I'm a GP because it's just not worth, like, I can't predict what they're going to say. Like, no, it's just not worth not. dealing with that backlash. I just say, oh, I'm, I'm in healthcare and just try and move the discussion on. And I know I shouldn't. I should be proud to say I'm a GP, blah, blah, blah. Cause yeah, but you've got to protect yourself, I though, just, haven't you? It's, yeah. That's the most important thing. But, yeah, and I think from trying to turn that turn it round and be a bit more positive, there was a, a nice tweet from Dr. Anita Munoz. Who, it wasn't related to this, but I think it just came at the right time, essentially, because we are getting, I guess, well, I'm certainly getting disillusioned by it all. And they said, what's a GP? A clinician who treats ev- every bodily complaint in any age, who doesn't turn you away or say not my area, who treats your skin, heart, kidneys and battered psyche in a single episode. If that's not a super specialty, I don't know what is. That serves quite as, as a good reminder, right. essentially, doesn't it, of kind of, I guess, why people you know why we go into this kind of career. But I don't know, it's really important, no matter what specialty you do, no matter what training program you're in, it never... It'll never not be important to have like helpful seniors and good trainers on board, will it? It's just one of those fundamentals. It has a massive impact. So this is a tweet by Sarah Marsden. Her Twitter handle is at Gasling Sarah. And she puts time this will have taken on on call consultant to send minimal impact on morale, huge. And the message was, you've all been a brilliant team overnight. Well done. I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks. It's just so, something so minor, isn't it? But it's so gratifying. Have you had any experience of a consultant doing something for you or the team that has made like a huge impact on your morale? Like something quite small that made a big impact? Yeah, last week. So where I am at the moment, there was one particular day last week, there was two SHOs and two AMPs covering the unit. And we were getting ready for like the afternoon MDT and one of the consultants walked in with cake for all of us. Like she'd been to the canteen and just bought cake for us all and just said, oh, I thought you could all do with this. And we were just like, like, that's just, just like, that's I was so like, oh my God, why, why are people so kind? And I was just like, and I'm thinking so like, what is, what is the catch? Yeah. <laughs> and I can't think of, it makes me sad again that I can't think of many experiences where I've actually Mm-mm. felt listened to or... You know, I can think of many more times. I know our minds always go to like a negativity bias anyway. That's human. Yeah. But like in neurosurgery, constantly I'd be ridiculed after night shifts and called lazy or whatever, humiliated for whatever reason in front of my whole bunch of colleagues at the time. And you know, and I wasn't lazy. I know that sounds like I'm probably protesting too much, but people just, I don't know. It's, it's just a rarity that these things happen now. It's so yeah, sad. Yeah, it is. It is. It's so sad. Even now, if one of the senior GPs 
or the practice manager like sends me a message saying, well, could you pop up after your clinic or could you, like, oh, can shit. I talk to you? I'll always assume there's something, even though I've got no reason yeah. to, I start like thinking back, oh crap, like what have I done? Has anyone, yeah. could, have I upset anyone? Is there a complaint? Like I'll always assume it's something negative because no one yeah. kind of calls you up to say, oh, you know, well done, you did that today. Like a or, positive, yeah, yeah. message. And they, but there was also like talking about neurosurgery and going the other way. There was a lovely thread from Mr. Michael Canty, who's a consultant neurosurgeon, and that was about the importance of a good trainer. And and I think this goes like no matter again what specialty you're in, I think it just it strikes a chord with us all and I really hope that all doctors will come across people like this in their careers like I say no matter what specialty you end up doing but he just made the point that he was a junior neurosurgery trainee he had a a patient with a large extradural hematoma that was life-threatening and it needed kind of operating on he had not done it before the consultant came in supervised him through it all he said he remained patient throughout even kind of the more challenging parts And then at the end of it all, the consultant insisted that the trainee speak to the family and for the trainee to tell the family that he did the operation and that he saved this patient's life. And he just said it was just a simple, powerful experience that did wonders for his confidence. And he called himself a very green trainee and that he thought it served as a good reminder that kind of those positive training moments can be extremely simple but so profound it's they stay with you as well like you'll always remember those trainers you do that yeah so I really hope that you know I feel like these people are it's you know it's a shame to say that I don't think that's the norm but I really (laughs) hope that all trainees will come across people like that in their careers it's like those little things that keep you going and keep you moving forward isn't it but it can be tricky to know. Yes. <laughs> it can be tricky yes, can. when you're yes. rotating round and you're having different supervisors who yeah. like the same thing done in completely different ways. Yeah. So this is a tweet by Wes Channel. And he put, learning anaesthetics reminds me a bit of learning how to drive, except you have a different driving instructor each day. <laughs> and if you try and drive like the last person taught you, they'll think you're crazy. That resonated with me so much, especially in new. I can imagine. Like, I feel like I had to have so many different personalities and I had to have like yeah. a different personality for each boss that I was kind of operating with. And it wasn't just about the techniques or the operating kind of methods that they wanted. That was like one half of the battle and people had different tricks that they would like. And then if you did that with another consultant, they'd be like, who knows taught you that and tear you to shreds. But it was also about like how to act. So yeah. There were some consultants that I knew I could talk to and have a normal conversation then there's other consultants that I knew I'd practically have to remain silent with yeah and trying to remember all those was just incredibly exhausting yeah no I can't <laughs> be yeah. afraid to slip up like yeah and I think when we and when that happens I think we have this real risk of sometimes feeling like you can't win and you constantly I guess panicking that you're going to slip up and do something yeah. that somebody won't like and that can be incredibly deflating then, can't it? Because you're not doing anything wrong. No, you can't just be how you want to be. Yeah. Did you feel like you had to act a certain way Hell when you yeah. were like a trainee? Of course yeah. I did. Exactly what you said. A lot of my consultants had very different personalities and some of them had very strong personalities. So you had to kind of know what's going to piss them off and what's not going to piss them off. And I really felt that... I felt free once I'd got my CCT to be free of that. I was like, oh, hang on. I don't have to answer to anybody. Like you can just go in and just like be yourself, work how you want to work, get your own way of doing things. And no one's telling you actually you shouldn't be doing it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, life 
for me anyway life has definitely felt work life has definitely been a lot better a lot easier since CCTing just got to get to that point, man. I can't do any more training programs. I just want to be, just want to CCT in something. You're not doing any more training programs. You're going to finish this one. And, and not um, letting you. But the, there was a tweet that went a bit viral. It got well over 4,000 likes. And I kind of, I appreciated the sentiment of this tweet, but I thought maybe this is not a senior colleague that you might not want to emulate. And I don't know whether to mention who tweeted it, but essentially it was a consultant surgeon mm-hmm. and they said the part of the NHS people don't see, I'm on annual leave, but at home, called today about a patient who was admitted. I'm now going in to do her operation as I'm the best person to do it. I won't claim any money or time back. This is the best thing for the patient, full stop. And like, I get the sentiment and it's, I guess it's in a way it is commendable and she this person clearly wants the best for her patients, but I'm just worried about how potentially unhealthy for that person this behaviour can be. Not only for that person, but the precedent that it sets for your juniors yeah, as well. So if you're doing that yourself, is that what your expectations are going to be of your juniors? And if that do they then see that as the norm? And there was just yeah. a good response. I mean, the responses were bang on. I, I quite liked the response by digital and tech GP it's Twitter handle with Dr Gandalf 52 and he put admirable post but disagree with the emotion full stop this behavior is Stockholm syndrome like leading to burnout in clinicians as it pushes altruism to keep a system in distress running claim your time back and don't push this as an example for others and yeah a lot of people were were saying something yeah I think the sentiment was echoed quite a few times but Yeah. yeah like you say about the trainees and then does it mean that if you were not someone willing to go in on your day off and not claim time or money back for that then does that mean that you don't care about your patients it's really complex I think that type of behavior isn't it but we have that so much in medicine it's like you're expected to stay late you're expected to do the extra hours but hang on you know why do we put that on ourselves why do we create that environment and you know what I can't say extra hours I've got to pick up my kids up from school you know I have a life outside Um, of work work is work but we're expected to be actors martyrs and you know, yeah. this job is our calling. And if you're in healthcare, then you should be doing it because of the good of your heart, not because it's just a job. I mean, mm. that whole, it's all, it's all. Finley's yeah. response made me laugh, though. He said, on call this weekend, given the extraordinary pressures the NHS is under, I will be doing this for free. Also, we'll be donating a unit of blood each day to replenish <laughs> stocks in our blood bank. And there was another reply to that, which made me howl from Laura. And she said, unless you are also offering free boiler checks with each patient discharge, then I'm afraid you <laughs> failed. <laughs> Is that you what know we're what? To? That's not. I know GPs that have been asked to do a home visit for boiler yeah. checks. For I have water. one yeah. had. I've, I've once been asked to go and fix do a, an urgent home visit to fix someone's chair because course, very yes, that was very his chair. Needed. His chair was broken, and because his chair was broken, he had to sit on the sofa, and the sofa was too soft, and it gave him back pain. So unless oh I could gosh. come out and fix his chair, his back pain was never going to get better. I'm like, Bloody you really hell. don't want me yeah, to this, be coming out. That's a very convoluted way to get you to fix the chair. And but, I tried um, to explain, yeah. yeah. So, so you I'm, know what? I'm, it's not um, too far from the truth. <laughs> no, and I'm a plumber's daughter, so I have learned quite a fair few things about boiler checks and hot water. So I am waiting for my time to shine <laughs> that I get a home visit and someone tells me, oh, my hot water's gone off. And I'll be like, let me just check the pressure on this combi boiler. <laughs> I'm waiting for that moment. I'm waiting. I was actually yeah. also once asked to a home visit for someone's dog because their dog was sick. And I said, oh, 
I'm a doctor of humans. And they're like, yeah, can you I'm a human do- vet. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, as a trainee, there's this thing where you, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but I'm very much a people pleaser. And there's this thing I just constantly want to please my seniors all the time. I just want to look like I'm doing a good job. I want people to be happy. And you I just, don't want yeah. to get told off. No, that's what I'm afraid of. It's happened too many times already. (laughs) So this was a tweet by Dr. Albert Gifford. And he put, consultant today said, well done for being proactive. Little does she know, it's really just me immediately doing tasks when a consultant requests it in fear of being told off. (laughs) I think that's why we all did it. I really felt that tweet. (laughs) Really felt it. And and along the same lines as kind of overthinking, there was a, a, a tweet that came up by at Dr. Amy Saidi and this just really resonated with me as well in kind of my overthinking type psyche and she was talking about kind of how tone in emails can be perceived so she said I'm tired of stressing about how punctuation affects tone in emails is this too many exclamation points (laughs) is this full stop too harsh no more I'm just not going to use punctuation in emails anymore stream of consciousness baby (laughs) and I'm like yes my god I think about full stops I'm like oh my god do do I sound like a bitch if I put a full stop there I write an email Nina I can't just write it and then press send I then pretend I'm the other person reading it I then have to read it in their frame of mind does that exclamation mark make me sound like crazy does that full stop make me sound pissed off then I delete the punctuation and then I'm oh it's a curse it's an absolute curse the only punctuation curse. I get <laughs> that stresses me out is my colons and my semicolons oh I love a good semicolon I just don't I feel love... like I do them right I just don't do my semicolons right or my colons. I don't know what the rule is so I for me know. I use a semicolon when I feel that a full stop is just a bit too harsh I'm like oh I'll stick a little semicolon in there and then oh, I feel I like just, it's a bit more friendlier, but I, just, I think I've I just, just made I up just grammar avoid rule. all colons and semicolons. <laughs> a colorectal surgeon can't say that. <laughs> you're lucky you're a GP, Gail. <laughs> can't avoid colons. No. How do you sign off your emails, by the way? Because like, um, this is another debate that always comes it back It depends up, who it? it is. If I'm feeling really pissed off with somebody, I'll put kind regards. Ooh. I know. But Ooh. not really like, Criminal. lots of love. Nina. See, my, so my, my, I'm, I'm like really casual. Lol, I don't think Nina. about my emails. Yeah. It's literally just as from my pocket. I'm literally, as I'm doing something, I like, I never reread it. I'll just write no, it. I don't know why I worry I about these it, things And it so has much. just got littered with typos and yeah. Yeah, because there's people talk but about no like colons. whether regards is, yeah, no colons, <laughs> whether regards is harsh. My favourite go-to is, I, I like to end it with like, take care, Bethan. Um, oh, I might use that. I, sometimes but then sometimes wishes. it's too informal, I think. Best I wishes. I use best wishes a lot. Or if I'm trying to be, if I'm worried, I'll be like, with my very best wishes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, fucking hell, Bethan. Oh, sorry, swear. Bloody hell, Bethan, you're trying way too hard. <laughs> Calm down, Gail. I might use your take care. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll take care. It's really nice. But talking about emails and IT, something that we can all relate with, and or relate to, rather, was a thread. No, it was a, yeah, a that came up about IT. And that was by Yusuf Hashmi. And he said... I'm starting to realise that the workload junior doctors face would be halved if we had A, enough computers or printers that actually work, B, IT systems that don't take 10 minutes to load up or crash or freeze randomly, spent nearly two hours today trying to print out a single request form, tried seven different printers in different locations, each one faulty. I wish I was exaggerating. Please tell me why the IT system in my university was better than in a hospital where actual lives are at stake. Word. I mean, I working... In A&E, 
and then working in GP, you, there is, it's just worlds away. Like, I, mm. that's the one thing that I find the most frustrating. You see a patient, firstly, there's nowhere to see a patient. So you're spending half your time bloody looking for a bed or even yeah. a chair, like, or a room, yeah. just any space to, like, yeah. see someone. And then you see them and you can't, you, literally, you just can't find a computer. You can't mm-hmm. find any computer. So you're just standing there waiting for someone to finish their notes. So then you can go on and then you have to log out of them. And then you have to log on and you have to wait ages while the whole computer like rest- oh, mm. restarts. And then whilst you're typing, someone's like, oh, are you nearly finished with your computer? I'm like, no, I've just spent 20 minutes trying to log on. Yeah. And then in well, GP, do, uh... go on, sorry. No, go on, go on. You, I, you I was go on. just going to say the contrast in GP, obviously it's completely different, but you have your, you know, you've got your own computer. When I go into work it's already set up for me so it's already on everything's already ready so I just have to literally just oh, you pop princess. my you princess hello <laughs> drama queen they <laughs> do this for everybody at my GP practice anyway okay Thank okay you. but it makes such a difference and then you just got your own it didn't even cross my mind that IT like computer not issues GPIT would be a problem was, in yeah was yeah GPIT was good I was kind of Obviously, things can be better, but I was amazed by like how much I could access from just that one program. And yeah, yeah. I thought it was really kind of good. Yeah, I don't know. I think and when you're in hospital, like the cows, the computers on wheels never work. <laughs> but on, on my current unit, cows. some are like, yeah, the cows. But so on my current unit, some are like quite passively aggressively chained to the wall with like these heavy duty metal chains. <laughs> so they're on wheels, but you can't take them anywhere. I just, yeah, I just, IT is just a huge bugbear, isn't it? Another little boo-boo I made as an SHO. (laughs) I was doing my obs and gynae rotation and we just had those computers on wheels that were just trialling in our ward first in the hospital. Is this 30, 40 years ago? No, this is 30, 40 years ago. I'm joking, I'm joking. And um, we were all there, like the reg, the SHO and like the lead midwife that's on labour ward. And then, oh no, it was the consultant, the, no, it was, yeah, the reg, the SHO, the head midwife, and we were about to start a ward round. And I was the most junior person on the team. And then the reg looked at me, she goes, can you go and get the cow? And I was like, oh, <laughs> no. I thought that meant the consultant on the ward, consultant off the ward. And so I was like, oh yeah, we, yeah, we've called uh, them that in uh, Pete's, but yeah. I was just, I was like, yeah. oh, I'm like the cow and they're all just looking at me I'm like so and then she kept saying can you go and get the cow and she was a consultant who was known to be quite harsh so I'm yeah. like all right oh, so like she was being calling her a cow the... oh my god I just got that. I was like looking around like everyone else is completely pan face like is no one gonna say anything so I just oh went up to the goodness. consultant saying oh could you join our ward <laughs> that they'd all called oh, her a cow God, it was the most that. embarrassing moment <laughs> embarrassing I had never oh heard just God. say get the computer like it oh yeah Is that was that was wheels? that was yeah, really in in when I used to work in the children's hospital the consultant of the week was called the cow and I always used to get really confused <laughs> I'll phone the cow it's like oh okay oh. <laughs> which farm are they on but yeah I don't know there's like lots of these lots of these little things can really impact in on like burnout I guess can't they like when they all culminate together it can just lead to burnout and frustration and kind of bash your well-being and 
a slightly change, big change in topic, but there was a little question posed by Claire Davis this week. And she just said, you know, I thought it was a very good question. I really enjoyed reading these replies. And she said, what has been your best get back to work hack after burnout? There you go. There was a lot of back hacks in that <laughs> yeah, one. That was. <laughs> I was losing the hack back point <laughs> plot. But yeah, do we you think got, you yeah. ever been burnt out, Nina? Do you ever, does that resonate with you at all? I have. I got really burnt out. This was in, oh yeah, it was really bad actually. This was in at 2020. Yeah, the beginning of the pandemic. And I think, I don't know if this is a thing, but I think I was life burnt out rather than oh, just work. Yeah. Is that a thing? I it think, wasn't I just work burnt yeah, out. It burnout was, can was, happen in any capacity, yeah. I was completely burnt out, like it, from every angle. Like I think 2020 was just... 2020 to the beginning of 2021 that year was Mm. a really challenging year so I had had two bereavements of really close family members and I couldn't make both the funerals one I got COVID the day before for my cousin's funeral and I it was very difficult my dad was diagnosed with cancer October 2020 I had a cancer scare that year as well I had to go through the two-week wait process and my car was written off on the motorway and I was working as a salary GP and I was just doing, yeah, I wasn't happy at work at all. I was staying, you know, extra three, four hours every day after each shift. And I just, it got to about February, January, February, 2021. And I just hit a brick wall. I just Mm. couldn't keep going. I think how I coped with things was really poor. So when I was going through everything with you know, my grandma dying, my cousin, and my dad's cancer and everything. How I coped with it was I threw myself into work. So I wouldn't have to think about everything else that was going on. And you think as like someone who, you know, advises patients on a fairly regular basis about healthy coping strategies, you'd think I would know a little bit better. But no, I had a really unhealthy way of coping with it. I just worked and worked. And that was only just so I wouldn't have to think. And I didn't even... I didn't actually realize how burnt out I was. It, mm. There was a, a medical secretary in my GP practice who actually came to my room and she said, you're not right. You're, you're not mm. right. She just said, you're not yourself right now. She goes, we don't, you don't come upstairs to say hello to us anymore. You're really, your message emails are very short and curt. You're just not, you. not yourself. Mm. And it was only when she said it did I actually realise actually how bad I was. I, I didn't really have yeah. insight into it. I didn't really want to admit it to myself as well. But then yeah. the practice manager told me to take some time out. And I thought, my God, if they're asking me to take some time out, I must be. Yeah. And that's coming from a place of care, isn't it? And I think burnout is really hard to recognise in yourself. And I had a slightly similar experience, whereas I think it was quite early on in my neurosurgery training and I was kind of getting to know like staff because we were kind of based in one unit. We didn't really rotate in neurosurgery. And I just found myself just becoming very tearful and very kind of withdrawn and just, yeah, just had this whole kind of sense of being defeated constantly and what's the point and tired. And people would say, oh, you look really pale or you look tired or you look peaky. And I just didn't know what was happening. And it was mm-hmm. one of the specialist nurses came to me and said, oh, were you burnt out? And I did. I never heard that phrase before. No, it was only I like four or five years ago. But yeah. yeah, I didn't know. And I thought, oh, I don't know what that means, but I don't know. And she said, oh, it's kind of, and explained like a little bit about what it was, but it was very much just a passing comment. And I thought, oh, that's, it didn't, it bothered me, but not in a bad way that someone had made that comment. So I thought, oh, 
however whatever's happening to me is obviously visible to other people now like obviously I know things I guess are not quite right yeah but now it's kind of it's out there and that actually prompted me to actually I'd not been registered with a GP since I left my parents home and like at the age of 18 and I was kind of it was now 10 years or so later I'd never been registered with a GP but that comment for some reason just prompted me to register and I went I think I went to the GP and said oh I'm just feeling like tired all the time and she said oh we'll do some bloods and then it it just came out I said oh there's this thing about burnout and it just everything just fit and it's just strange that you sometimes need that other outside party I guess to kind of recognize it isn't it but there was lots of good kind of little tips on that thread. And like I said, I did really enjoy reading the replies. And it gave me Are a there sense of... any ones of... that resonated with you? Or yeah. what tips would you have about returning to work after burnout? I guess on the whole, it was just like validating to see other people had experienced similar things. Yeah. So there's that connection, isn't it? That we know that we're not alone and this happens to people. And it's obviously a big thing in healthcare workers. But just all the things really, like kind of visiting your family, going on holiday journaling therapy like therapy was the key for me you know doing things that energize you or not doing anything if that's your thing and then I think I've now I'm now less than full-time for like partly health reasons and that does relate to kind of mental health and burnout but less than full-time is a good is a good means I think to kind of combating burnout isn't it yeah But there was this question asked this week, and I know you have some experience of this with your husband, but there was a question asked and it it said, one of my friends is a male orthopedic registrar. He's struggling at work and I suggested that he goes less than full time so he can get some breathing space for self-care. 100% agree with that. But then he said he thinks he will be laughed out as a male doctor. Advice please and I just just irked me that not him personally but the fact that this is perpetuating isn't it yeah yeah my husband had a similar experience so after our second baby about a year after I returned back to work but they wanted me to understandably do one on-call day a week Mm. so be commit commit to like one full day like you know 10 or whatever hours but I couldn't do that with a three-year-old and (laughs) <laughs> of course and a little baby yeah so you know one of the days my husband would have to reduce his hours so that he could just pick up the kids from nursery or just look after the baby and also pick up the little one from nursery he only went three hours a day at that point and so he applied to to go 80 percent and just for I think it was six months or a year he just went 80 percent and the first thing he was told was you're the first male trainee who's ever asked us that before crazy I thought and then he was asked, well, why would you need to go 80%? And he said, oh, because for my kids. And he said they just looked completely baffled that a man would need to go 80% for childcare reasons. And it, it is this whole thing, like childcare responsibilities. It's still an expectation on the mother. And I don't, I really don't think that has made much progress. No, over it's just a shame, years. isn't it? It's well, so not damaging. as much as we think, or we no, think they have. I agree. And we've kind of touched, I think, on maybe our last podcast, I think, about the difficulties that people can face, especially as healthcare professionals and doctors when they are patients. And I think we spoke last, last podcast, there was someone who was needing surgery and they were trying to sort it so that they could still do their ARCP and things like that. Yeah. But it was quite like, oh, I don't know, I've just found this really upsetting this week because it, it connected a lot with a recent experience of my own. Yeah. And that was a tweet by Dr. Raja Adnan Ahmed. And he tweeted, this week, a junior doctor told me they were asked to submit their hospital appointment letter to prove that they really got one. I never have to do that. Has this been a routine policy or part of a new wellbeing initiative? 
how infantilizing is that i know it's all it's just it makes you feel completely untrusted yeah and where's the confidentiality like exactly yeah gosh yeah i didn't even think of that yeah exactly but yeah i had a recent i had a recent two week wait, two week wait and thankfully it was all okay when i knew i was going to be referred to that i started panicking about work and i knew i was going to go on to a new rotation and i was like oh my god what if i only start and then i've got a and because it was the, a breast clinic i knew it was going to be like an hour you know a couple of hours like the appointment yeah. and stuff and I thought oh my god like now I'm panicking about work and ha- are they going to give me the time off I've only just started what if it's on a day where I'm meant to be on call or whatever and when they rang me and said it was going to be on a Monday which is my day off anyway I just had this massive like sense of and I told my supervisor about this and, and they said oh but you would never have to worry about that here. Like, it doesn't, you know, if you had an appointment like that, we would make sure that you'd go to it. And then I read Dr. Ahmed's tweet and I just thought, God, like, I'm so lucky to have that. And then there's other trainees that are being treated like this. It's just, it's just atrocious. I just don't know how we are working in healthcare, but then we're treated like this when, when we need healthcare ourselves and we need kind of medical input. And once you're there, it sometimes it's not even can be quite tricky if there are other observers or students in the mm. room when you're having an intimate exam or something really personal. This is a tweet by Claire Davies again. And she put, if the patient is a healthcare professional, ask if they are okay with students or observers in the room. Who knows when the students pop up again and the healthcare professional is now supervising them. It isn't appropriate to assume it's okay. The same goes for all patients. That happened to me with that breast clinic this week. It was atrocious. Mm. Like I went, the whole thing was atrocious for a number of reasons, but just focusing on this reason, I went into the clinic room and the room was like full of people. (laughs) And the person doing it said, oh, we have a room full today. And then kind of said, oh, you know, introduced this as a student, medical student, this is a staff nurse, this is a student nurse or whatever. But it was just a comment, like, we have a room full today, not... Were you asked permission no, no. at any point? I wasn't asked, I wasn't, you know, a kind of, it wasn't kind of, oh, there's these people sitting in, is that okay? And it just felt like a lot of people, like normally I expect like one observer, but when there's more than one, and the fact that she used a room full as her terminology, I was no, just, compl- I just, I, and, no. and I think I was just completely struck by it and didn't challenge it because I just wanted to get the whole ordeal over and done also, with. Also, how do you challenge it? Because it's really difficult then mm. once you're already in that position. Like if I have a student in my room, um, a student with me in, in GP clinic, like normally you have the, in, in that surgery, you have the little call button, like you ping a patient yeah. in from the waiting room. But if I have a student with me, I make sure that I just go to the waiting Same. room, I call them yeah. myself. Yeah. And then I ask them permission before they've actually yeah. seen the student in my room. Because once you're faced with that person, then you're telling mm. like telling them to leave can be it can make that the balance is not yeah really the balance guilty. is not equal anymore at that point no not at all so yeah I think and I, I, and it has to be phrased in a way like it's your choice yeah like, exactly it makes no impact yeah. on the student or myself like yeah. you know whatever you feel comfortable I um I thought about this afterwards and I actually think that maybe that's why they said it in that manner is because then it's much harder for the patient to refuse so by you walking in and saying oh we have a room full here today as a statement it's like there's no question for me to respond to. It's an intimate exam. Yeah, like, oh it's God, a yeah. Breast yeah, it's just you know, such it's a vulnerable kind of time that so you can vulnerable. just you can see how people will just go along with it to get it over and done with. And even yeah. when even like people like ourselves who are healthcare workers and know the system, we still get caught out by it. So you can imagine how you know any person, yeah. a non healthcare professional, would feel. But I don't know. Just this constant experiences like this of being on the other side of things, and it, for whatever reasons, it's happened to. F- 
few times for me in the past couple of years but it's just constantly like changing my practice constantly and I feel like I can I'm quite an empathetic person and I will always try and empathize with people that's just like my natural stance but when you experience it experience it and know with yourself as well when you've hadn't have had that experience it just yeah I don't know it's just this whole mindset changes and the respect changes and it's just a new level of respect and yeah my practice is constantly changing I think when you have bad experiences as a patient like I've had that a couple of times when my dad was ill and also my two-week wait as well for my skin I thought I had keratoid lymphoma and you actually learn what not to do (laughs) like it actually that the negative encounters have a really big impact so that's probably changed my practice the most is actually experiencing it from the mm. other side yeah I wouldn't wish yeah. it I wouldn't wish it on anyone I wouldn't wish anyone unwell but if there's something that you can take no. from it I guess it's just it's that isn't it but yeah should we go to something a bit more light-hearted to should finish something light-hearted can I start with Zach Ferguson's tweet because it was so funny so he put instead of going to see a doctor I just tweet a list of my symptoms in the third person and then add, what's going on here? I'll release the answer tomorrow. Hashtag medical mystery. Hashtag dead. Get the diagnosis quicker. It was the hashtag medhead that proper tickled me. Because I don't know, sometimes... I love the hashtag medical Sometimes with the algorithm on Twitter, I get like a lot of posts about... a lot of the like these very educational American MD accounts that will post like pathology slides or pictures of scans and all these kind of symptoms. I hate the ones that they say, I'll post the answer tomorrow. I'm like, well, I'm just like, I'm not gonna. <laughs> but I just thought, they just made me no. laugh. I thought, oh, are they just doing it because they don't know the answer? I'm waiting for us <laughs> yes. to comment. Oh yeah, that's right. That's the one. I'll say something I'm gonna do from now on. <laughs> What's I going like on here? <laughs> another another tweet alive. It made me think. It got me thinking about our personalities, Nina. And I'd be interested to see what you say. Oh, but God. this was a tweet by Alex Nevard, is it? And he said, my mum said yeah. to me, I don't know how you can do what you do and call yourself an introvert. And I assume he's an emergency medicine trainee. So he then said, so EM people of Twitter, any other introverts out there? Or is the stereotype of loud type A personality well-founded in emergency medicine? Do you feel you have the personality of a GP? That's what I want to know. I feel like I have like my work personality and then my... Actually, you know what? I don't. It all kind of merges into one. (laughs) No, I think I'm just kind of loud and clueless most of the time so that's yeah that's probably why I like you so much yeah. GP. <laughs> yeah. I don't know I've started you know like the different type a type b personalities I don't know what I am yeah so type a people say is like the high achiever goal orientated good under stress impatient which is not I don't think not me type b the impatient maybe we're a combination yeah. of all these things <laughs> type b yeah. is like what I think what they call like the socializer so relationship orientated, outgoing, enthusiastic, relationship orientated, yes, enthusiastic, mm, depends, depends. Type C is the thinker, so that's detail orientated. Oh, you've actually got the look this yeah, up. Yeah, I love I all this stuff. Oh, no, no, type A I knew, but the others I didn't know. So type C is like, yeah, detail orientated, logical, prepared, which is definitely, I don't think, I don't think I'm a prepared person. Are you a prepared person? hell no um god no look how much we prepare for this podcast can't you tell i'm not a prepared person you're type c you're type actually c. no i do like a good list that is you true. are so prepared yeah, are you list. kidding me and then type d is like the supporter so task orientated cautious 
stay stabilizing I don't know it's hard I think, obviously it's a very rudimentary way but it yeah. makes sometimes it makes me laugh sometimes when I think about people and how they fit into like certain boxes and stuff Specialties. I'd be intrigued to know as to what a GP personality would be and whether any of us fit into that <laughs> but probably safer not asking actually after recent events but something that the boys always like to include on their podcast is a fest hole as well isn't there they love a good fest hole I'm not reading this one out no this no, you? you're talking this about you. you're talking about the NHS fest which I'm talking about NHS yes, fest no so that so the NHS fest is this random page that's cropped up recently that's talking about NHS confessions but some of them are very <laughs> naughty and we couldn't possibly talk about them on the podcast but no the boys have you seen fest hole the, I have yeah, seen fest hole so I love fest hole the boys love a, a fest hole but there was this really bittersweet one this week wasn't there about the have you got it (laughs) no so okay I'll read it out so this is oh I don't know it just made me sad and it said oh no yeah I don't know which one you're talking about yeah I haven't got it I've deleted it but I do know which one you're talking about so they said I shared a flat with a nurse in 2020 when she was on shift I sometimes used to borrow a uniform from her wardrobe and go out dressed up as a key worker pretending to go (laughs) to and from work just to get outside probably saved me London was eerily quiet I was like, oh, oh, that's just... That made me cry. That's really... <laughs> but to be fair... Firstly, like... I thought that tweet was going to go a very different oh, way. That's <laughs> not, not me, not... Nina. I'm sorry. Couldn't, couldn't possibly be me. <laughs> but, like, I think, like, do you know, during that time, during lockdowns, I, it was... I felt incredibly lucky to go to work again. I've never felt yeah. that before. But to go yeah. and see people just and have lunch with people. Like, yeah, that was... So yeah, that's... Oh God, kind of made and also escaping now. from homeschooling the kids. Oh, oh my God. God. That's Bless probably what you. led me to yeah. life burnout. Yeah, having a three-year-old and a six-year-old homeschooling oh. them. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's enough to burn anyone out. Let's finish on a really ho- wholesome note. Again, this is like, again, bittersweet and kind of sad, I guess. But a really lovely tweet to read by at that Kerry Hudson which she posted on August the 20th at 11.57 and just telling you the details there because I would recommend going to read that in the replies but do you want to read out that tweet Nina? Yeah it's a lovely tweet and she wrote for a piece what's the most comforting thing a doctor or social worker or benefits person has said to you not as part of their job just as part of their humanity This week, two doctors made me cry just by acknowledging I have, in fact, been very ill. Such a small but important thing. Yeah. And the reply is just like, oh, it just got to me because a lot of the people were just saying things that you would just expect a decent human to, a comment for a decent human to make, like just validating someone's pain or validating, you know, that of course, you know, your own body best and how people have clung on to these sentences and they've really stuck in their mind as, as kind of things that healthcare professionals have said that they just found incredibly comforting. Yeah. Like like the theme is always just having, you know, it's how powerful it was just having a doctor believing them which you just assume is always the case but believing them or just trying to understand the impact yeah that their illness or the pain that has had on their life done their life yeah but actually verbalizing it and saying it out loud like I think sometimes we just assume patients will know that we care and we acknowledge what they're feeling but actually just saying it yeah and essentially just how powerful validating Mm. that can be for the patients absolutely and there's things like you know so people are just saying things like, oh, the GP said, that sounds really awful to live with. Just the acknowledgement meant the world to me. And I think it's those comments like, yeah, you can know all the medicine in the world, yeah. but just being a compassionate human 
And yeah. you just can't ever underestimate the power of the words that you say in, in these kind of types of Definitely. consultations and Definitely. interactions. It just brought that home to me, I think. Do you know what reply I really liked? There's a reply by Kate Hogarth and she put like one of her, the response from the GP, I think, in commas, you know, this isn't your fault. This isn't because you did something wrong or you didn't try hard enough. Mm. Was it? One sentence, world of difference. Yeah, that's and incredibly I have important. had a lot of patients who, you know, you assume that they've come in with something and of course it's not their fault, their symptoms or their pain or, but actually they believe that and to someone to say out loud to them yeah you know this isn't because of anything you've done it's not your fault they it's freeing yeah they hold on to that guilt for so long and we see it in patients who have like new diagnoses of malignancies or tumors and they're like oh but I've been so healthy or I don't smoke and it's like unfortunately like this is not anything that you've done as in unfortunately it's not something that you've done but it's like I think sometimes people want yeah, it's harder if you like the complications yeah, as well. Yeah, it's a it just lifts that blame, I guess, feel. off people, doesn't it? And you know, yeah. you can never blame yourself for those kind of things. But it's easy for us to think that, and people will just inherently do that. So, probably a good note to end on. Do you think? It's a yes, I think yes. so. So, I guess. Oh, and it's bank holiday oh, this yes. weekend. I'm off Mondays for anyway, so I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm just like, oh, it's a normal week. holiday yeah. weekend for you every, every weekend. weekend. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Right, I'm sending my kids to you every Monday for the rest of the summer oh, holidays. Lord help them. Well. Lord help them then. But yeah, behave everyone. Stay cool. And have a good bank holiday if you're not working. Oh, and don't forget your microscope. And if you're... Did you see that this week? That the mm-hmm. was it pathology Royal College of Pathology Royal College of Pathology exams. I sent out an email. Oh, yes! Don't forget to bring <laughs> yes! your own microscope. So don't forget to bring okay. your microscope, people. Let's leave it That'll there. That'll come out of your well-being budget. Yeah. Oh, take care, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye.